Let's pray together. The bounty of this text, Father, is very, very great. And I pray that it would reach to the edges of this room and then through these people to the edges of our existence and beyond by prayer. Oh, that the bounty of this text would enfold the nations today. Oh, that the bounty of this text would enfold churches that don't believe the scriptures and save them, reform them. Oh, that the bounty of this text would reach to those we love and ache to see become rich in Christ. So, Father, there are things to do now in this service yet that you have come to do. Saving things and sanctifying things and establishing things and reconciling things and healing things and emboldening things and things that I cannot even imagine to ask you are now prepared to do. And I ask that you would show yourself powerful to do them. So come and help me be faithful now to this word. Through Christ I pray. Amen. We would be untrue to this text. Verses 9 to 13 is where we're focusing. We would be untrue to Romans 10, 9 to 13 if I didn't preach and you didn't hear the bounty, the large-heartedness, the inclusiveness, the expansiveness, the generosity, the broadness of the heart of God in this text. You can't miss every, every, all, there is no distinction, all, all, everyone. It's hard to miss the breadth of the heart of God in this text. I'm going to hang my thoughts on that on three things. The word call and the belief that's underneath it and behind it. The word all and the expansiveness of God's heart in it. And the word riches, which for some of you is jarring because you expected the third one to rhyme with the other two. And I thought that I wish I could, and I could, I really could, but it would be so Strain, you would have considered it weird. So if you, if you really must have a third point to rhyme with call and all, then use the word enthrall because he will enthrall you with his riches. So those are the three things that I will hang my points on to get at the, the breadth and the generosity and the expansiveness and the inclusiveness of the heart of God that is really driving this text. Now, what I want to do to move to those three things, the call, the all, and the enthrall, to move to those three things is to back up and try to catch on to the tracking of Paul's thought from the beginning of chapter 9, because I think if we don't do this... We won't feel the weight of what he's really saying when he gets to verse 9. I don't think you'll feel what is really on his front burner when he gets to these verses if we don't back it all the way up 
and uh, catch the flow of thought beginning in chapter 9. So let's, let's do that. It'll take a few minutes, but it'll be worth it, I think, to be in track or in sync with the apostle when we get to verse 9 of chapter 10. In chapter 9, verses 1 to 23, Paul answers the question why it is so many in Israel are not part of true Israel. And his answer is that the purpose of God according to election decides who will be in true Israel, not those who are born according to the flesh. Let me read it for you. This is verse 6 and verse 8 of chapter 9. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So there's an Israel and then there's an Israel. There's true spiritual Israel, there's physical Israel, and he's saying, no, the true spiritual Israel is not defined by the physical Israel. Now verse 8, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted, reckoned as offspring. Now, that free, electing purpose of God to base who belongs to the true Israel, not on flesh, but on his call, opens the door wide for Gentiles to be a part of Israel. And Paul walks through that door in verse 24 of chapter 9. Look at it. He has called us not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And everything else now, from chapter 924 right on through today's text, is wrestling with the question, why is it that so many in Israel are not part of true Israel, and so many of these Johnny-come-lately uncircumcised Gentiles are flowing right into Israel? Why is that? And the answer now that he gives isn't election anymore. That was chapter 9, 1 to 23. The answer he gives now is justification by faith is being embraced by the Gentiles and being stumbled over by Israel. We need to pause here before I show you that to just let the weight of the wonder of the opening for the Gentiles hit you. This doesn't mean much to us today, probably, because most of us in this room are Gentiles, and we've known about Christianity for 2,000 years, and it seemed like it's ours all the way along, and it's very hard for us to get into the skin of a Gentile in, say, 35 A.D. or 40 or 55. Excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, alienated from the promises of God, excluded from the covenant, unclean, un-Jewish, uncircumcised, stiff-armed by the people of God, by and large, feeling always on the outside. And there's a stream of history running through this Jewishness from Abraham on down, and we're always outside looking in. And then comes Jesus and says things like to the Pharisees, People will come from east and west and sit at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the sons of the kingdom will be cast out. You say, whoa, that's big. 
And then you get the Apostle Paul preaching to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Let me just give you one example of what it meant to those Gentiles sitting there, some of them hopeful God-fearers risking attendance to the synagogue or outside listening in. And he comes to Antioch of Pisidia, and it says in Acts 13, 46, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary for the word of God to be spoken to you, Israel, first, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, and then he quotes Isaiah, the Old Testament, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And listen to this response, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began to rejoice, glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. When they heard this message, Israel, the Messiah has come. He has lived for you. He has died for you. Believe. And they stiff-armed this glorious doctrine of justification in the righteousness of another and insist on having their own. Paul says, all right, world, it's yours. Come on in. That's the way Paul talked. And when the Gentiles heard it, I think they could hardly believe. Heirs of Abraham, participants in the covenants, members of the household of God, uncircumcised, unclean, unJewish, alienated. I can't believe I'm included. John Piper, it ought to move you, Gentile, if you know your history. It ought to move you deeply that you're included. Now, let me show you what I said a minute ago, namely, from 9.30, chapter 9, verse 30, up through our text today, Paul is wrestling with this. All right, I understand election, and God is ultimately in charge, and he's making the calls ultimately. But on earth, why? What's going on? Why aren't they getting it? What's the deal here? The gospel is there. And I want to show you Paul's answer to that. First of all, three times, verse 9, chapter 9, verse 30. What should we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. The gospel is lifting up Christ, the stone, and his righteousness. The Gentiles say, I can believe. And they believe, and he's theirs, and they're in the kingdom. And the Jewish people say, we have a law. We will do our law. And that will win our acceptance with God. Not this alien righteousness offered us in a Messiah that suffered and died. No. And they are excluded. Look at it again now in chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. The same dividing line. Chapter 3, I mean chapter 10, verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God 
and seeking to establish their own, here you see it, this is what the historical problem is, seeking to establish their own, they, Israel as a whole, did not submit to God's righteousness. And what is that? Verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Christ for righteousness to everyone who believes. Just give it up on establishing our own. Just give it up. And the Gentiles know they didn't have a chance anyway. They were so unclean and so dirty and so unworthy. They, they just saw this as, yes, there is another righteousness. Christ that clothes me naked. Do I come to you for dress? And they got it by faith alone. And the Jews, by and large, Still to this day, we won't have it. One more time, a third time, he makes the issue clear and the cleavage and the dividing line of what separates those who are belonging to the true Israel and those who are falling away. Verse 5. This is last week's sermon and text. It was very complex, and I will just hit the highlight here. Verse 5. For Moses writes, this is chapter 10, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. And then in verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith says. So there you have it again, a third time. Righteousness from faith, righteousness from law. Which will it be, Gentiles and Jews? There's only one way to God. Righteousness that comes from faith, not righteousness by law-keeping. Which will it be? And the cleavage happens. And Gentiles are streaming into the covenant people and many of the sons of the kingdom are being cast into outer darkness. So in sum, what's the reason why the Gentiles are being included in true Israel and many in Israel are not? Answer one, God's purpose according to election. Answer number two, the Gentiles are seeing and embracing Christ for righteousness to all who believe. And Israel is establishing its own righteousness and being lost. Now, I think we're ready to enter our text with a sense of what is most on Paul's mind. I said what we want here is the, is the thrust, the main sense or feeling of the Apostle Paul. And unless I've missed it badly, I think Paul is entering verse 9 saying, They're included! They're included! The Gentiles are included! The arms of God are as wide as the world. And he knows he has to make the case from the Old Testament because it sounds so strange that Gentiles are going to become Jews. 
Gentiles are going to become the heirs of the promises of Abraham. Gentiles are going to be in the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. It sounds so strange. All these unclean, un-Jewish, uncircumcised, alienated Gentiles are packing out the kingdom. This has got to be given warrant from the Bible of the Jews. And so in verse 11, he quotes Isaiah 28, 16. And in verse 13, he quotes Joel 2, 32, in order to make clear that he's not getting these ideas out of his own head. He's rooting them in the Old Testament itself, where the Jews live and move and have their being. And what we see in each of these two Old Testament texts, in verse 11 and verse 13, is all three of my points. The call, the all, and the riches that enthrall us of God. So, let's take these one at a time. Number one. First, the call. And when I say call, I'm using it as a catch word for a larger reality. Namely, the heart believes, it rises up with faith, comes out of the mouth with call and confession. That's what I mean when I say call. Let's read verses 9 and 10. Watch for the words mouth and heart. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified or one believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth one confesses unto salvation, or end is saved. Now, why does Paul talk about the mouth and the heart? The reason is this. He found those two words in Deuteronomy 30, verse 14, which is quoted in verse 8. And therefore, he picks with them, picks up with them and runs. Let's go back and read verse 8. What then does the righteousness from faith say? What then does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That's where Paul got these two words, mouth and heart. That's why he's dealing with them, wrestling with them. That is the word of faith which we proclaim. Now let me try to give you another summary of last week's message so that verse will make some sense. You remember in Deuteronomy 30... The words referred in Moses' mouth to the commandments of God. And they seemed high and out of reach. And they seemed way across the sea or at the bottom of the sea and out of reach. And the people were saying, oh, who will bring them down that we may do them? And oh, who will bring them up that we may do them? And when Paul reads that, and I gave about four reasons for this interpretation last week. I won't rehearse them. He puts Christ where Moses had commandment. Don't say, oh, who will bring Christ down? Oh, who will bring Christ up from the dead? The righteousness of faith doesn't talk like that. The righteousness of faith realizes Christ, the great commandment filler, fulfiller, 
stands where the commandment was for those who will believe in him. He is the fulfillment of the commandment. He is the commandment come down and fulfilled for us so that all of the law is pointing to Christ for righteousness for those who believed. And now he gets it, verse 8, and he says, okay, now this thing, this great reality is in your mouth and it's in your heart. And he ponders, he just stops and ponders, mouth, heart, mouth, heart, mouth, heart, mouth, heart. And if you want to see the way his mind was led, go to verse 10. He says, with the heart. What do you do with, what does the heart do with Christ? If the heart has Christ, what does it do with Christ? And he answers, the heart, with the heart, one believes. And then he says, now what, is, what does the mouth do if it has Christ? And he says, well, the mouth, the mouth confesses. Con- the, the mouth says what is true in the heart and speaks. So he's getting, he's getting this from mouth and heart in Deuteronomy 30, 14. And he's saying, all right, what is in the mouth and what is in the heart? The word of faith, which we preach. Word, mouth, faith, heart. The heart believes, the mouth speaks the word of confession. And then he sums up in verse 9 that great, glorious gospel sentence that we all love so much. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, don't put mouth and heart against each other here. Don't try to divvy this up and say, well, the mouth has a thing and it has to do with the Lordship of Jesus and the heart has a thing and it has to do with the resurrection. That's not, that, don't, don't do that. Rather, the point is, the mouth expresses what the heart is embracing, feeling, enjoying, resting in, trusting, believing, treasuring, and the mouth is saying that. It's called confession here. In the last two verses of the text, it's going to be called calling. Those who call upon the Lord will be saved. It's not as though if the mouth said Jesus is Lord, the heart wouldn't have to believe that he was raised. And it's not as though if the, mouth, if the, if the heart believes that he's raised, the mouth doesn't have to say that he's Lord. It's, it's the heart so full of embrace of Christ risen and crucified that it speaks he's Lord. In fact, when you try to say, okay, is there a connection between resurrection, what the heart embraces, and lordship, what the mouth speaks, it doesn't take a lot of reflection, does it? What does the resurrection stand for? And notice here it says, God raised him. It doesn't just speak of it as kind of a general event like Lazarus. It's God looks down and raises him. What did that mean for the Apostle Paul? It meant, now your work is done. All your justifying, saving, glorious, atoning, substitutionary work is done. I will vindicate you and lift you up and give you a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, namely the name Lord Curios, which should fall on our ears as I think it fell on the ears of the synagogue with a shattering force. Lord, Lord, 
Lord. It is true that in 1 Corinthians 8, 5, Paul says, There are many lords and many gods, referring to the demonic powers behind the pagan religions in Greece. Many lords and many gods. So is he saying, Jesus is one of those? Kyrios, Jesus, a lord. We know that's not what he means. And not only theologically do we know it, we know it contextually because of the flow of thought into verse 13, where he quotes, for the sake of Christ, Joel 2.32, everyone who calls upon the name of Yahweh will be saved. And he calls it Jesus. You confess Jesus as Lord. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, Yahweh, Jesus, God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Listen, to be a Christian is to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, Jesus is God Almighty. That separates us from Islam It separates us from Judaism. It separates us from Hinduism and Buddhism and New Age. American spirituality. No Christ be exalted in this room right now among those who are doubting and those who are rejoicing. Because you, we confess as a church, are God. That's what it means to be a Christian. When God raised him from the dead, he was declared to be son of God in power. Very God of very God, manifest and declared by the resurrection what he has been for all eternity, namely God. So my first point is, there is a a function of the heart and a function of the mouth to embrace this. The heart believes, the mouth confesses, the heart believes, the mouth calls. That's point one. Point number two. The word all. We Gentiles are included not only because we recognize that Justification is by faith alone, and you can have a right standing with God by trusting the alien righteousness of his Son. We know that, but now we know it also because we hear that the invitation is made so indiscriminately and broadly and widely to everybody in this room, everybody in the world. I think this is Paul's own emphasis here, not one that we cock up, because you see it in verse 11 in that he added the word everyone to this Old Testament quote. Now, if you have an NIV or an NASB, you don't see it because it says whoever in the NASB and it says anyone in the the NIV, and those are absolutely right, but they don't quite say the same thing as everyone, pass, 
And the reason I stress it is because it wasn't there in chapter 9, verse 33, when Paul quoted this text originally. It's not there in Isaiah 28, 16. It's not there the first time he quotes it. It's here because this is his burden. Everyone, everyone, everyone. This is an indiscriminate call and offer that is going out from the apostle and from God's heart to the world. Everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. And then he underlines it again in verse 12. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all. Underline all. Bestowing his riches on all. Underline all who call upon him. He underlines it again in verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is so crucial. This is so crucial because if you were a Gentile in those days, it would be so strange to hear that you were included in the true Israel. And so Paul, both from the Old Testament and his own words inspired by God, is proving from Joel 2.32 and Isaiah 28.16 that the Old Testament itself meant to include the Gentiles. So, just as... Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe. Now we Gentiles see that because of that wonderful new free way of salvation, the invitation is not just to those who meet certain ethnic distinctives, but to absolutely everybody everywhere. Therefore, we are saved and we are debtors to the world. You're a debtor to your neighbor. You're a debtor to your father and mother who's not a believer. You're a debtor to son and daughter and uncle and aunt. David Livingston is a debtor to Uncle Sterling who doesn't believe. And Tuesday will sit under David's ministry. And he asked me, oh God, he asked me, pray, John, pray. I think my dad made it. But... Uncle Sterling is not there, and David's a debtor. I'm going to get on the plane in about two hours, which is why I will not be able to stay and pray with you afterwards. Others will, I hope. Because I'm going to fly to Dallas, get on a car, drive to Sherman, Texas, where today about 50,000 students are gathering on a farm for a thing called One Day 03. And I go as a debtor. And tomorrow, and I'm only mentioning this because I desperately want you to pray tomorrow, all day. I wish I could tell you when I was going to speak. I did this once before. It's, there's this platform. It's almost as wide as this auditorium. Then there are these giant trons that are go up as high as that speaker. And you make you look like a giant so that the students sitting a quarter of a mile away can see you. And these gigantic speakers like you've never Seen, and I'm a debtor. I go as a debtor to 50,000 college students gathered under Louis Giglio's leadership to say, Come on, let's take this to the nations. Come on, generation. Be a generation passionate for the holiness of God, ready to lay down your lives for the unreached peoples of the world. And all the campuses of America, look, all you students in the University of Texas who have these nice 800-person worship gatherings every Tuesday night, 
quit the University of Texas, register at the University of Vermont, where they don't have one single event like that. Why don't 300 of you transfer? Come on! This is what we are debtors to do, not to soak and soak and soak in our IVP chapter, our Campus Crusade chapter, but to look at the parts of America which are burned over like New England and explode there with about 10,000 transferring students. Wouldn't that shake New England? This is the kind of debt we have to pay to the campuses and to the nations. And so I just pray that you will pray for me and Josh Harris and Beth Moore and some others who will stand just one day tomorrow on that platform. And it feels to me like about 20 Bethlehem sermons packed into 35 minutes, and so the weight of it is very heavy. It's a fasting day and a day in which God could, if he pleased, shake the foundations of the church. Pray that. Last point. Um, Riches. This is the best part. I think it's the best. Because... If if there was only my faith, my call and confession, an invitation extended to everybody, to what end? What's it all about? I mean, what's the good news? We haven't, we haven't filled it up yet. It's just, there's a void. We haven't put anything in it yet. We've created this cup and said, it's for everybody. It's for faith alone. Well, what is it? We haven't said a word about it yet. And that's what this riches is all about. Look at verse 12. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. So I'm taking the word riches to refer to everything in these texts, these five verses, that is good and enjoyable. Every one of these verses describes what the riches are. And it isn't stuff. It isn't things, toys, cars, houses, lands, businesses, investments. Those things don't satisfy. You know they don't, unless you're young and foolish and still have to prove it by your own tragic mistakes. They don't satisfy, and they don't last. So what is the riches? Well, the word salvation helps a little bit. Verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Verse 10, second half of the verse, the mouth with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Verse 13, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, 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 saved. What does that mean? From what? Hell, condemnation, guilt, sinning, all negative, gloriously negative, wonderfully negative, but still negative. For what? Before I give you the for what, there's one more negative. It's, it's, it's really beautiful. I love the negatives, 
Don't hear me putting the negatives down. I'm glad I don't have to go to hell. I'm glad I don't live under the burden of condemnation. I'm glad my guilt has been washed away. And there's another one I'm really glad for. Look at verse 10. Um, No, verse 11. 10 in a minute. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. I'm glad that God will one day vindicate his people from all their shame. I say it like that because in this world, we we get shamed. And we're supposed to. You remember what happened to Peter? Acts chapter 5, verse 41. He went out from the synagogue, having been flogged, publicly made a spectacle, shirt ripped off, whipped, made fun of by the Jewish leaders. He went out and it said he rejoiced that he had been counted worthy to be shamed for the sake of the name. What a conviction that one day the tables would be turned and he would shine like the sun in the kingdom of his father and he would be vindicated. And all that hope streamed back into the present and established him in the pain of that shame of that moment. Or what about Jesus when he said, Blessed are you when men revile you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That's shame. It happens at work. It happens in the neighborhood. To the degree that you become aggressive in evangelism and start pushing yourself into people's lives out of love's sake, it happens more and more. If you just stay in your house and watch TV at night, of course you say, well, I don't think we're getting shamed in America. Of course you're not. People get shamed when they become godly. People get shamed when they become loving. The avoidance ethic that just shuts you up in your little clean house, watching clean videos, doesn't get any shame from anybody. The world is happy to let you be there. Normative shame comes from normative, aggressive love, mercy, gospel telling. And then Jesus adds, reward. Rejoice in that day, for great is your reward in heaven. Rejoice just like Peter did in that day, for great is your reward in heaven. You're going to be vindicated someday. Indeed, as part of these riches, you are already vindicated in the eyes of God. Look at verse 10, first half of the verse. With the heart one believes, literally, Unto righteousness or and is justified. That means your declaration of righteousness is already passed. When you put your faith in Jesus, God unites you to him and his righteousness becomes your righteousness. And all shame between you and God is history forever. The world can shame you. But you're never shamed before God, ever. God never looks upon you any other way than in the infinitely shame-free Christ. He bore your shame. In him, you don't have to bear any shame before God, which is an amazing thing given how many shameful things I do. I feel the most keenly in relation to my wife 
And how quickly my tongue says hurtful things. And I walk out of the room thinking, I don't deserve anything except judgment. And the only thing that keeps me going is a husband and a pastor. Because the same thing happens in my pastoring. Is Christ for righteousness to a desperate sinner who turns to him over and over again and hopes for some little modest advancement in being a better husband or father or pastor. It's all negative so far. Can't get much better, but it does. All the riches so far have been saved from and no shame. That's all negative. Now what? For what? To what? What satisfies the heart? If it isn't things, what is it? And I'm taking my answer from Romans 9.23, where the phrase, riches of his glory occurs. And I'm arguing now that when it says, he is rich unto all who call upon him, it means Mainly, most deeply, most eternally, most profoundly, most satisfyingly, it means rich with displays of all satisfying beauty and glory. In other words, God will be our treasure. God will be our glory. God will be what satisfies our hearts. God will be our salvation. God will be our shamelessness. God will be our riches. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 3, where he said, I count everything as loss for the surpassing value of just knowing Christ Jesus. Not to mention fellowshipping with Him, being known by Him, walking arm in arm with Him, growing in appreciation for Him, enjoying all the lavish benefits that He has to give. Not to mention any of that. Just to know Him makes me count everything in the universe as rubbish. That's what the riches are mainly. It's God Himself offered us in Jesus Christ. So, I close with a word of appeal, call, believe him, trust him, confess him as God, the Lord, call on him. The invitation has gone out to every one of you, and you are now a debtor to the world, if you believe it, embrace it. It's reached every part of this sanctuary. There's not a person here that God has not spoken to through me this morning. When you stand before Him at the judgment, He will call this mind today, if you're not a believer, and say, He told you. He laid it out so fully and so clearly that it's easy. I have done it all. My righteousness on your behalf, my death in the place of your death, my shame in the place of your shame. All you need to do is trust me. See me for who I am. Confess yes, yes, yes to what Pastor John said based on the book of Romans inspired by God. And then all the riches will be yours.
all the riches will be yours. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you for he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, O Bethlehem, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Cleft from of old, from which flows a river with a double cure, removing wrath and making you pure. And we're going to sing it. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let's bow in prayer before we sing. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, please let no one leave unbelieving. Grant that their eyes would be opened to see the glory of Christ, the very God of very God, Lord of hosts almighty. The whole earth, let it be filled with his glory from Texas to Minnesota and from here around the world. Receive in these voices now praise and honor, acclamation, confession, and call as an expression of our faith. Through Christ, I pray. Amen.